Welcome to The Machine, a computer science education podcast from Waterford Institute of Technology. My name is Rob O'Connor. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Computing and Mathematics at WIT. Uh, if you want to find us online, we're at machine underscore podcast on Twitter. We're at machine podcast on Facebook. But I'll be honest with you, I rarely update the Facebook page because I'm not really big into social media. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, CastBox or wherever you get your podcasts or hopefully wherever you're listening to this. Right, it's a new academic year and the world, and certainly this part of the world, is a much different place than this time last year. Now, we're a little bit late getting the podcast going this uh, this semester. Uh, despite what you might think about public servants in Ireland, we've actually been very, very busy. Uh, going from in-person to online education was a major shift and involved totally reworking the way that we do things and equally Going the other way is not as easy as flicking the switch. Uh, it's a lot more complex than you might initially think. Uh, my life has been ruled by spreadsheets for the last month. And don't worry, we're not going to have an episode of The Machine on MS Excel unless uh, maybe there's significant demand for it. I doubt there will be, though. Uh, I'm not complaining. Uh, I enjoy being back on campus and uh, there's a lovely energy interacting with students face to face. And I'd say the same is true for interacting with some staff as well. Uh, there is some new podcasting material coming this way from the college. Uh, very soon we'll be launching a new podcast called Nine Plus, uh, which is focused on research work, uh, stuff that goes on here. Uh, you'd be amazed at some of the things that people are working on. Unless you're directly involved, you may never even know what's happening. So yes, there will be a technology kind of strand to it, but we'll also be getting into biomedical science, material science, agriculture, and uh, humanities, uh, spirituality and ethics, uh, which based on my initial conversations for that podcast uh, is going to be absolutely uh, fascinating and uh, might even be required listening for pretty much everyone. Anyway, back to the machine. Over the course of this year on the podcast, we're going to try and explore some of the thematic areas that we work in in the Department of Computing and Mathematics, uh, the various sub-disciplines of computer science. Uh, the reason for this is that on many of, their, of our degrees, and specifically applied computing, which is the one that I most look, mostly look after, uh, students can specialise in particular areas. And every year we organise short presentations that outline what's involved in these specialist streams, but I find that they're a bit too short. We're not able to get into any major depth in the area in a five minute presentation. So I thought, let's do a podcast on it and we can have a deeper chat about the Internet of Things or cloud computing or whatever it might be. Um, today, we're actually going to talk about cloud computing. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a computing student or if you're just somebody who wants to learn a little bit about the topic. We're here to help. And today that we is made up of Richard Frisby and Lucy White, who are both fellow lecturers in computing and mathematics at WIT, and they specialise in the area of networking and cloud. We also have Kieran Roach. He is a service delivery software engineer at Red Hat, and he's also a graduate of WIT, and he's a sound head as well. Actually, everyone is sound. So uh, we have, yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, we have lots to talk about. Um, before we begin, I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this, you have a rough working knowledge of the internet, even at a most basic level. And if you don't, I'd refer you back to an episode we recorded a while back called How the Internet Works. Go and listen to that and then come back and talk and, and have a listen to this podcast because it will give you a foundation in the basic engineering of the internet. So I suppose we'll start by just explaining what cloud computing is. Uh, sure, maybe Richard, we might go to yourself first. 
what is cloud computing? Okay, uh, thanks, Rob. Um, great intro. And now I'll try and be as brief as I can about what my understanding of cloud computing is. Um, I suppose historically, uh, I remember the days when we had servers in computer rooms or hub rooms or just there was the server room in a building or in an office and um, people used applications that would have connected to the server. Um, so over the last 20 years or so, um, these server rooms became what are known as kind of data centers now. They would have been larger facilities that companies, corporations had themselves. Um, and in more recent times then, uh, they've moved those data centers or those servers up into kind of public service companies, the likes of Amazon Web Services, AWS, uh, Google's Cloud, um, and Microsoft Azure. They're, they're probably the three big players there. So what cloud computing is, is it's a little bit like the way that you consume electricity. It's uh, on a pay-as-you-use type of a model whereby you don't need to have your physical servers on campus. You use those servers for computing, running applications, databases, web servers. You use those and you pay for what you use. So actually, Lucy, can I get you just to clarify what something is? Could you actually just explain what a server is? Oh God, a server. Well, the way I th I now think of servers is uh, provisioning like uh, some server in uh, a remote location where in actual fact, talking like what Richard was saying earlier, I also remember working in um, in Waterford Crystal, that, that lovely factory that used to be down the road. And we like that we would have a server room whereby you would have um, um, uh, a dedicated device that would basically be provisioned to either be what could have been a web server, a mail server, uh, that would serve uh, clients, you know, in a client server type architecture. Not, I probably am complicating things as we go along and introducing more technology, but effectively it is uh, it is providing a service mm. um, uh, depending on whatever that service is. Yeah, so but a, a server is essentially just a computer with a dedicated job. As exactly. opposed to being a computer for running your Windows desktop or, or whatever it might be for your applications, mm -hmm. it's a, a, a it's a computer that provides services that you as a user might interact with, such as, for example, reading your email or mm -hmm. you know reading yeah. Twitter or whatever it is that you have with a lot more capacity in order to be able to serve those the, those services, you know. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of like a, a truck as opposed to mm -hmm. a car, if, you, if, you, mm -hmm. if, it, if it's a crude analogy. Um, Kiron, so would you agree with the way that things have been described so far? And feel free to, you know, disagree if, if you want to clarify anything. Yeah, uh, pretty much because as kind of Richard and Lucy were explaining, and especially Lucy when she said it about services, uh, when it comes to kind of cloud computing, the way I think of it is it's kind of... It, they are services, but they're broken into different categories. You have like platforms as services, you have infrastructure as service, and you have software as service. So that's how I kind of look at cloud computing. So for an example would be like software as a service is something that you probably use every day. You mentioned earlier on Google Excel, uh, or Google Docs and Google Sheets. These would be classes as software as a service. They're not running on your machine. 
they're running somewhere else, they're running on someone else's machine, someone else's server, and you're able to consume this service. Same then can be said then for, you can break it down into infrastructure as service. So like infrastructure as service is the actual dedicated machine. So you can take that compute power, instead of having compute power on your own laptop or your own mobile phone, you're borrowing compute power from someone else's machine somewhere else, <laughs> basically. Mm. Uh, platform then as a service <clears throat> be quite larger. So that's kind of somewhere where I, where I kind of work in, in, in OpenShift. OpenShift would be classed as a platform as a service. So it essentially is a way, without kind of waffling on too much, but OpenShift is a way of uh, allowing people to build their own platforms. So it's a it's a way of abstracting away from the infrastructure that's underneath it, away from abstracting away from the networking that's underneath it, and it allows it gives you a user an interface that allows them to deploy their own applications and build their own platforms on top of it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But that's interesting that you brought in the kind of the various as a service, which are often written in mm. an acronym kind of like AAS or SAS, S-A-A-S, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think I think what's what's important to note is, though, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, historically, you know, we were definitely limited by um, um, the, the infrastructure that was on premise. OK, so, you know, if we wanted to expand, there was a whole procurement process that would have to take place. And um, there is long delivery or long wait times and, you know, kind of initial start and you know time uh, was definitely um, um, an issue however mm. when we talk about you know kind of using services web services it is over the internet okay and it is you know as Richard said it's a, a it's a pay as you use basis or pay to go basis whatever way you want to look at it and really you pay for what you use Okay, and it's immediate, mm. and it is all of those kind of advantages, I suppose, of of the, the, that has helped that shift move to the cloud. You know, if I could try and summarize it by having a little bit of kind of story time for a moment, uh, like a hundred thousand years ago, or no, around about late late ninety nine, early two thousands, I was working for a software company in Cambridge in the UK. And uh, I was working as a programmer and one of the easiest days work I ever had anywhere was a day two of us were sent down from Cambridge to change out a server in a data center. And it involved us. We we had to borrow a car because we didn't have a car ourselves. And we had to drive from Cambridge to a data center on the Isle of Dogs in London. And basically take a server out of a cabinet, which was just a computer that had lots of RAM and particularly powerful processor and blah, 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 and put in another one. And then when the computer booted up, we had to enter a couple of commands. And I remember the main sysadmin of uh, the company, he made us practice those commands numerous times because basically for a little while, this service was going to be off the internet whilst we brought up this new one. And the idea of that today is anachronistic because if you wanted a new service or a new server, you could just spin up one on the cloud and you would get a new physical machine or a new virtual machine rather than actually having to bring a physical machine that the company would have to buy and own and maintain and all of that kind of stuff. Is that... Am I, is, does that sound reasonable to you, Richard, as a kind of a, a way of describing where we've come in 20 odd years of you know, service provisioning and the cloud. Oh, yeah. Very, very much so, Rob. But I wouldn't underestimate 
the importance of typing in those commands. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, as I'm sure that people, we spoke earlier about the Facebook incident last week with WhatsApp and Instagram and everything going offline. I'm look. We're not a hundred percent sure what the uh, cause, the root source of that problem was, but it could have been as some as simple as somebody typing in incorrect commands that grew legs from there and went on. But yeah, like we have come a huge distance in the last twenty or so years, and people now demand more f- of services. They want this reliability. They want this uh, guarantee that whatever they're using from a computing point of view is going to be there. If not, like customers will, as you know, turn away. They'll just mm. go and move on to the next app or they'll, they'll, I suppose it's, it's very much driven by the demand, demand that people have uh, in terms of uh, the usage of these resources. But um, yeah, I think there's, um, the, the, we've come a long way and I, I just, I suppose, want to kind of bring it around to what's underneath an awful lot of this and one mm. of the terms that you would, uh, well, we would speak about in, in class would be virtualization. And mm. we're talking about physical servers moving to the cloud. But then wh- what one of the technologies that's there is uh, the whole area of virtualization, whereby you don't have something physical anymore. You have something virtual. So services now are running on these virtualized resources and the three resources that are most important there would be uh, what Kieran mentioned earlier and Lucy would have been compute. So a, a processor, um, you have RAM that you mentioned, more memory going into these larger servers. So that's memory. And then there's the whole aspect of networking. And uh, we've seen the advances in men in recent years of high-speed high, high broadband networks and so on. So those are the three things that... Uh, upon which cloud computing is built. It's virtualization along with the provision of these virtual servers in terms of computing, networking, and memory or storage. I'm wearing a NASA t-shirt, right, which uh, I'd love to tell you is some sort of fashion statement, but it's not. It's because it was a cheap t-shirt that I bought in uh, pennies one time. But I it think... It was clean. It was clean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm working from home today and I consider this a win. Uh, the the I think I remember one time reading it, when I was reading about cloud computing, and it in, am I correct in saying that it initially, NASA were one of the main, one of the, the kind of the pioneers with cloud computing technology because they wanted to have a kind of a a a, a similar set a, a bunch of servers that were all set up the same way and could be replicated across the network as a whole have you heard anything about this or am i just imagining it no i definitely i think some of those larger organizations who are driving research forward they tend to come up with better ways of doing things as technology evolves and yeah, I do think then there might have been commercial uh, spin-offs of organizations like that, people going out and setting up companies. And um, I, I definitely one of most people are familiar with uh, Amazon Web Services. So um, Jeff Bezos back in the day when they were just selling books and CDs online with Amazon, they were one they were one of the companies that led the way in, in terms of they said, okay, we're selling books when we have a website, um, but 
this this website is running on uh, machines that we have in, let's say, in our data center. Let's build more of these, um, mm. and then let's let's sell the spare capacity. So effectively, that was the way that AWS was born. It started off just with storage that they had storage, and then they moved on to compute. And now it's one of the biggest companies in the world, uh, as we know. Yep. So, yeah, it's it's the I suppose it's born out of a need, but also out of research uh, companies that are pushing, always pushing the limit. Mm. Lucy, just again to maybe put things in a historical context, which helps us to understand where we're where we are now. I, I, again, there's a, so you're talking about like companies like Water for Crystal or, or whoever it is, and they all have their own servers that are doing jobs. But I'm correct, and I think I'm correct anyway, in saying that most of those servers were doing nothing most of the time. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, they they were they were underutilized effectively. So they were only actually um, like they could have been used five to five to ten percent of their capacity, and there was all of this wasted space. So actually, you know, kind of historically from the old mainframes, there actually uh, was there. You know, all the tasks were broken up, and each of the tasks were were given a, a certain, um, I suppose, a certain uh, amount of. Uh, processing but yeah that um, they were basically underutilized um, and there was a waste and let's go back to what Richard was saying that you know like when Amazon um, had all of that extra space when they um, when they were selling you know a part of their when they were using some of it um, for their own company well then there was all of this extra space and then they started um, kind of building on that model. Mm, and of course, AWS now is a, a bazillion dollar business and is yeah. what allows Jeff Bezos to, on a whim, decide, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm yeah. going to fly Captain Kirk to space for the crack. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, Kieran, so if we could just think, go back to the kind of, so we have physical hardware and that mm-hmm. physical hardware can be virtualized. So you can have one machine that, let's let's just say, for example, has 32 gigs of RAM and a processor that does whatever you could provision a a physical machine that had 32 gigs of ram into eight machines that have four gigs of ram or whatever way you might want to provision those and the idea then is that one piece of hardware that is only running at potentially five percent of the time or ten percent of the time as lucy has established or whatever it might be can now be more efficiently used and that's when we talk about virtualization but there's a, a term that i think richard mentioned is it's kind of a, a elasticity and when we talk about elastic computing, what is that? And could you maybe explain what that is, Kieran? Uh, it's being able to scale your services. So you, during off-peak times in the middle of the night when your web app is running and everyone's asleep and no one's using it, there's no need to have massive amounts of compute power behind it. So this being able to scale back or having kind of elastic services, you can pull that back on off-peak times and down mm. to the very bare minimum of compute power it needs. And then when things start ramping up, people start waking up in the morning and they start logging onto your service or during work hours, whatever it may be, then you can start ramping up then. So as traffic is coming into your service, you have services from the likes of Amazon that will automatically react to this. As the traffic will build up, they will either increase the size of your compute power. So if you've size X instance, they'll spin up a size Y instance, or they could spin up several several instances and then divert the traffic around all these instances. 
so that you're essentially getting a lot more compute power for it. So it allows you to scale up or scale scale down or scale and scale out as well. Mm. So essentially, like let's say, for example, Netflix, right, which is this web service mm. that most people can understand. Most people have interacted with it. Uh, so Netflix is sipping away and, you know, Okay, Netflix is a global 24-7 company, but every now and again they have something like Bridgerton and, you know, seemingly the whole world was watching Bridgerton there a few months back and they would have to ramp up extra capacity in order to service the load of, you know, millions and millions and millions of people all watching Bridgerton at the same time. And then that kind of wanes and they're able to reduce the amount of services that they have to provision and that can also reduce their cost base. Whereas if you had to physically have all of those machines present in your own data center, Netflix probably do have their own data center, but anyway, you know, you would be paying for that regardless of what the usage was. Whereas this, you only pay for what you use. Is that is that kind of correct? And it's a smarter, more efficient yeah, way. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more cost effective. And just, I think uh, Netflix, they were definitely, they were running on Amazon. So they don't have their own data centers. They, they leverage Amazon, which... Is definitely a sign of the times that a lot of companies are uh, pushing to like manage services that they mm. allow s- someone else to do it. So they don't end up in a Facebook situation where they make a configuration change and everything goes down. They allow someone else to do it. But to go back to your original question, yes, uh, definitely. It's definitely more cost effective. And then there's other technologies then that they can leverage with being with Amazon. They can push their content to the edge, as they call it. So like you have a data center that's in one country you could be streaming Netflix in a country that doesn't have a data center, but Amazon have the resources that they can push that content and store that content closer to where the end user is, which then will in turn increase or decrease latency and increase speed and stuff as well. Rob, sorry, Rob, one term that did come up a few times, um, both yourself and Kieran mentioned that there would have been Automa- automation, automatic, uh, automatically sp- like creating servers or services. And I know that is one of the areas that Kieran is working in. It w- would be in, in the management of this type of uh, virtualized infrastructure. And that automation there, the ability to do the same thing over and over again, uh, is one of the key features of, of cloud computing. Um, and I, I, the reason I'm bringing it up is I'm laughing like during the week. Um, I was talking with the students and there's an area called DevOps developer. Mm. It's a mixture of software programming. So writing code and also managing operations, the way that things work. So that's DevOps. And it's also, there's a, a, a phrase there called DevOps, whereby, okay, <laughs> you're writing your code. And oops, we are pushing out the wrong, <laughs> the, the wrong, uh, the wrong piece of code. So DevOps can quickly become can become DevOps, and uh, th- there was a lot of Borat Twitter comments and so on last week when Facebook had th- their incident there. So um, it not like the ability to automate things is great, but if you automate it and it's incorrect, then it's uh, a lot worse. Yeah. Um, right. Well, I want to come back to the Facebook one in a moment because I, w- I just want to establish just a couple of extra things and then we'll talk about Facebook and perhaps why it failed. We don't know, but we can speculate. Um, Lucy, what would be some of the key skills that a cloud computing professional would would need? Definitely, they would have to have um, some networking skills. Uh, uh, can I just actually say before we go mm. into this, like 
this stream is actually cloud networks. You know what I mean? So yes. a very good on yeah. So a very good understanding of uh, networking basics. Okay, uh, definitely some programming skills because everything is being you know kind of you have your software defined networking. Um, good maybe Python, definitely good operating uh, skills. So Linux operating, I, 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 operating systems, uh, good understanding of the different, um, um, this good understanding actually of the services that are provided and um, a knowledge of the APIs to help interact with those for those automation that uh, Richard was talking about as well. Yeah, just kind of echo what Lucy was saying. Very much so from the stream anyway, the, the cloud computing and network stream, it's getting a high understanding of the basics because it, even with the internet itself, it's all built on layers of abstractions. So when you're going to get out into cloud computing world, get out into DevOps and get out into like a site reliability engineer or even just a general engineer, you're working with technologies and you're working with tools that are just abstractions on all the the core fundamentals so having that understanding of core fundamentals is just it's it's so valuable so like an example we say i remember i think it was second or third year we were doing subnet masking and i remember sitting down with a pen and paper trying to go through a mask and submit or like just break up an ip address and i remember getting very frustrated with it and wondering like when will i ever need this but then fast forward into my career and it's just now you're spinning up like a virtual private cloud and it's just literally clicks of buttons and without having an understanding of i'm adding subnets into um into an into a virtual cloud and i'm creating all these ip addresses without having an understanding of what you're actually doing just by clicking buttons it, it really helps like it really helps limit the number of addresses that you have that you, you could be spinning up thousands of addresses we only need a handful of them but having mm. an understanding having that kind of core basic understanding it's just it's, it's huge I can't, I think I remember you, Kieran, asking me why did you need a pen and paper yeah. uh, working out this subnet. <laughs> yeah, sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> I know. I I have a first year class and I'm about to do stuff with them, and we're going to make them do stuff in a pen and paper, and they always hate it. But yeah. I think it always it's a valuable thing because anyone mm. can just type stuff in, but or mm. click a button. Whereas if you understand the theory behind it, it, it it allows you to make a much more informed decision later on. So what I'm hearing there, Kieran, and 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 from Lucy and from Richard as well, is that understanding this stuff or have be, being a good profession it's actually having a high level view but equally it's having a low level view now i know that sounds sounds a bit contradictory but i think you can only have the high level view if you understand what's going on down at the low level and when that doesn't happen is maybe where mistakes come in would that be fair enough definitely because like i said it's it's now so abstracted like when you're using a lot of these tools that it's it's very easy to click the wrong button because all, that's all you're doing is you're you're reading documentation you're clicking and clicking buttons essentially in a, in a lot of cases so without having that kind of fundamental understanding it's very easy to click the wrong button it's true because you, you can do everything in the cloud so like that's yeah. one of the deployment models it's you know it's a um if 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 it is all those you know click here and type in this and you know kind of and not going down at the the automation level uh richard or the DevOps side but if you're just looking at the services you know kind of um it it can mistakes absolutely can happen mm. and then without having that underlying knowledge uh, it can be difficult to troubleshoot because because effectively that's what you're doing isn't it you know really everything is fine when it's working 
But when it's not mm. working, that's where the troubleshooting has to happen. And, and that's where the, the knowledge and understanding of what's actually going on under the hood is important, you know. One other skill, Rob, that I, um, that I think is it's, uh, essential, right? It's a, a skill. It's, it's more so it's the, the desire to learn and the motivation is probably as big as anything. Like uh, if you have an interest in the area, um, then that's going to like that's going to be that's going to stand to you. Okay, we mm. do have some technical skills. There's there's loads of different roles that people can fulfill in the whole cloud computing space. Like uh, it's 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 the same. It's when you say cloud computing, really is just computing. Um, so they can a student can go down many many different pathways. But uh, if they're interested in problem solving and trying to figure out how things work, well. Um, that is definitely uh, a huge uh, characteristic that would get you a long way down the f- uh, down the path. Mm. Right. Let's go back to the Facebook one and speculate for just a moment, just for the crack. So Facebook had a major disastrous outage last week. Uh, Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram all just completely disappeared off the internet uh, no services were like for a, a significant amount of time uh, which it would go against when we talked about, about service provisioning and there's this thing called you know five nine so that services should be available 99.999% of the time that completely Facebook have gone for that for the year anyway um, so when it went down there was lots of speculation online largely on Twitter uh, because Facebook and Instagram were down uh, <coughs> that they oh it was I kept hearing oh it's DNS it's a DNS issue um, and I saw some kind of mad stuff online I saw there was one particular thread somebody was was, was getting retweeted all over the place um, again on Twitter and it was somebody just had a screen that was just essentially just a trace route command on facebook.com and it was like Facebook isn't just it's not just down it's gone it's gone from the internet the servers don't exist anymore and I was reading it going no 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 that just means the service isn't reachable that's all it means it could be any number of things Um, but anyway that's neither here nor there what do you think now Facebook have come out and said oh it was a configuration error and they've said no more about it what do you think happened last week with Facebook? Okay, um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I've only read, like yourself, some posts and the details probably uh, will never come out or if they do, it'll be uh, down the road a bit. Um, yeah, I, I'm laughing about you saying Facebook has gone off the internet. It reminds me of years ago, somebody deleting the icon in Windows for Internet <laughs> Explorer and saying I deleted the internet, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. From what I've been reading about, it seems to be uh, an issue between DNS and BGP. Um, so DNS, we know, is like the telephone book. It's like your, um, you've got your list of contacts in your mobile phone. Um, I, I'd say I probably only know about two or three people's mobile numbers and everything else. It has to, I have to look up my contacts list to, to give them a ring. So DNS just maps the names uh, such as facebook.com to this address on the internet. And as you, I know you, we spoke about this, I know in a previous podcast, but how the internet works. So hmm. um, if, your, if your phone book goes missing, then nobody is able to look up what the numbers are. And so that, that's one aspect of it. And BGP, 
stands for Border Gateway Protocol. And effectively what it is, it's just, it's like a map. It's basically telling you how you can get from one place to another. So um, you might set up your GPS going from uh, Waterford to Dublin, and you'll probably probably more than likely take the motorway. But if there was a, uh, a serious accident or crash on the motorway, you might end up rerouting and going off and going some of the back roads to get to Dublin. So um, my understanding is that Facebook have these data centers right throughout the globe, and that their DNS, which is the, their address book, um, is being shared using these motorways um, with by, by BGP. And what happened was that the BGP routing got messed up. Okay, so effectively, we don't, we don't know where we're going. Our map got deleted. And then even though the DNS servers were there, we couldn't get to them. So there was no way of actually ta- asking the phone book what the number is. So we didn't have a we didn't have a motorway to bring us to the to the to the phone book, um, and that then was uh, I suppose even f- made more difficult to resolve because the guys who fix it, the engineers, they're on the outside. They couldn't get in to actually fix it because the network is down. And they're talking about this out of band network. An out of band network is where. You have a separate network that is not used for delivering applications and services. It's mainly used for management, but they weren't able to use that either. So they had no way of getting in. And I think guys had to physically go into the data centers to actually access the boxes to configure them. Now, that's I'm speculating, and I'm sure there's many other different uh, connotations, like different variations of that but that's effectively it i think it was a mixture of these two protocols dns and bgp and then the human factor as well so um yeah i i don't i don't know necessarily if it was just uh it, it was somebody clicking the wrong box i think there might have been a couple of s- steps along the way um and yeah that 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 caused a huge as as we've seen it caused a huge huge outage there um uh, one last thing, just Facebook do speak about these storm days that they have. And a lot of companies, and I'm sure Kieran can vouch for this, they will have, they will kind of simulate failures. So they'll try and break things and to see how they can fix, fix things. Um, so I think that, that resilience or that, that training that some of those Facebook people did helped it get back as quick as it did. Um, but I'm sure, as they have said, they'll they'll learn they'll learn their lessons. Um, maybe maybe Kieran has some insight from the way that maybe some of that stuff happens in Red Hat. I don't know. <laughs> I was just going to say I've learned something new today because I've been I've been pretty ignorant of the whole Facebook. Thing. I'm not on Facebook myself, but uh, I did notice WhatsApp was down, so I was like, oh, that, that was a bit of a shock. But yeah. but I suppose it was it was indicative of just how reliant we all are. It doesn't matter whether you're a technical person or not mm. on these cloud services. You know, and they've just become part of the fabric of our lives. Like, I mean, for example, I was supposed to be taking the kids to athletics training and that's all done on a WhatsApp group and that was gone down and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly everything was just, I wouldn't say gummed up, but you just realise, God, how how important these are to our lives, you know, on a a variety of different levels, whether it's something as simple as athletics or businesses or or whatever. Yeah. So, sorry, Kieran, I interrupted you there now. Again, I 
to how we kind of do things essentially is that a lot of the networking side of that stuff, it's, it's uh, we're leveraging Amazon, we're leveraging Azure, we're leveraging Google Cloud Platform. So we are running our software on their infrastructure. And then we have our own, so like in my organization, it's I'm one of the very few engineering teams that's there. The rest of the whole organization is all site reliability engineers. Mm. So site reliability engineer is essentially um, a term coined by Google, which is an, an adaptation of what Richard mentioned earlier on of DevOps, of a DevOps engineer. So site reliability engineer, the way they kind of define it is that they're very focused on customer satisfaction and that they, everything a site reliability engineer does is to aid the customer. And when you kind of break it down, it's essentially they keep the lights on, they keep the lights on the product. So when you look at OpenShift dedicated, you have this software that's running on, that has its own dedicated site reliability engineers that are there to keep the lights on on that. And underneath that, then you have the cloud provider, which that cloud provider then has their own site reliability engineers that are there to keep the lights on and ensure that the infrastructure is running. And then at the top of that, then you have me, (laughs) that is just a regular engineer. And our job is basically to provide tools to allow users uh, accessibility to the platform itself. So that's where that's where I work anyway. <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering there, Kiran. There's so many layers, as you say, there of of people doing different job roles. Is there then a case whereby uh, the the process, if uh, in terms of something failing, uh, is there any scenarios that would be gone through in terms of making sure that this is going to work? Given certain disaster situations, would you would you actually have these testing scenarios before something that's let's say goes live into production? Yes, in the sense that there's uh, like two mentioned that like the five nines and the nine point nine 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 percent. In order to get there, you need like SLOs and SLAs, like these service agreements. And in that, then there will be a, there should be a full kind of chain of ownership of if, if X happens, it lands on team Y and so forth. And then on top of that, then you have the correct alerting and the correct metrics there so that you're, you're aware of an incident before the customer is aware of the incident. And then there's a chain of command and a chain of ownership that will flow down from where the incident happened and to who's responsible for that incident and how to fix it. It's all learning, isn't it? It's all learning. And kind of you can't ever, you know, like they would have never, you know, kind of what happened a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, you know, they, they you know, an entire system failing, you know what I mean? Now, but if you read all, all around it, they say they're learning from it. There, it it's always a learning um, experience, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's an interesting one I read about Facebook. It was an article I read. Um, I think it was on The Verge. I can't remember exactly you know, where it was, but they were saying that Facebook so BG, you've mentioned BGP and, and DNS and, and some of the standards that are out there in the internet. Facebook have decided to take those standards and implement their own Facebook versions of them. And they've deviated ever so slightly from the standards. Now, this I, I'm, spe- I'm reading an article and this is what they're saying. Fa- Facebook are a very secretive company, so I don't know this for sure. But that one of the reasons why they were they were locked out for so long was because they have deviated from the standard. So... 
it's not quite the same as if this happened to company X somewhere else. The solution there wouldn't necessarily work because these Facebook DNS or Facebook BGP is ever so slightly different to the regular BGP or DNS. And the reason they did that was to uh, prevent them from having catastrophic failures which is kind of ironic, I suppose. Uh, Mm -hmm. But again, now I don't know if that's true and we are just speculating. And again, Facebook haven't come out and really said what the problem was other than it was a configuration error. Uh, But it just shows you how important cloud computing is, how important networking provision is and how important all of these things are to our kind of regular everyday lives, I suppose. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, uh, you know, come and talk to us. Um, I'm going to finish up with one final thing, a kind of a, a fictitious scenario, if that's OK, just to kind of talk us through the the process. Imagine we wanted to set up a f- fake company or a fake service, right? Let's say we're going to build a WhatsApp clone, a messaging clone, right? So we could send each other messages on our phones or desktops or whatever it is. How would we go about that? What cloud computing or cloud or networking services would we need to provision in order to do that? So I don't know if any of you want to start on that. Well, Kieran. I'd I'd I'd, uh, I'd I'd get a load of money together and I'd hire Kieran, and he Kieran is going to he he's going he, he's going to put he put up his hand and I'd give it Kieran, and he would use. He would use Red Hat OpenShift up on AWS, and I'd probably have it in about an hour. <laughs> that was that was my answer too. <laughs> just come come to OpenShift. We we, we can uh, satisfy like any ask you have. Any of your needs. Any of your needs. <laughs> we have a solution for it. But uh, yeah, all, all joking aside, like it is true, like that, because like, you're going to like focus on your business logic of whatever type of application you're going to do and then leverage as many managed services that you can uh, go to the amazons go to google whoever whoever can satisfy or whoever has a solution for something that you need and then you can just focus solely on your business logic and getting your product out the door and then offload everything else then to other people let them worry about it and then you just pay them that's, that's the way <laughs> i go with it and that's the way it's trending as well that there yeah. is People, people would rather offload the responsibility of running specific services to other people. And they can just focus solely on their business logic or their core logic for their own customers. Bringing it back, Rob, to what you were saying there, that's actually a very good example of the type of a project that a student could potentially do in yes. Fortune on the cloud stream, whereby he or she could decide, I'm going to try and get all of these different components and just build, put them together like Lego bricks, and then that's going to be my that's going to be my final year project. Uh, and they can focus in on different aspects, whatever they want, security or functionality. And they don't they don't all have to be brilliant programmers. They can just utilize different different skills that they might have learned along the way. Yeah. So it's again having that high level and low level view at the same time. I think. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, right yes yeah okay right look I think we've we've got into it in a fair amount of detail there and without getting into the kind of the real you know horrible weeds about specific protocols or or services or whatever uh, I I think we'll kind of put a pin in it there that's a kind of cloud computing in a rough nutshell 
And again, maybe we might explore some of these areas in more detail on a podcast later on. Uh, to Richard, Lucy and Kiran, thank you so much for your time today in chatting to us. Um, if you have enjoyed The Machine, please leave us a five star review or, you know, whatever your platform of choice is. I believe that's lovely and the algorithms really enjoy that. Uh, not that I'm putting... Uh, emotional responses on algorithms but similarly they work better when you do leave a review so please do that uh, we've got some interesting episodes coming up uh, we're going to be doing one on the internet of things very very soon we're going to be talking about security uh, we're going to be talking about games development and the various other streams that we offer in WIT so until next time thank you very very much and we'll hopefully talk to you soon <laughs>